0: Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Welcome back, everyone. Um, today, we will be speaking again with Dr. Mari Kirsten from the Pete's Surgery Department at Steve Beaker Academic Hospital. And today, we're going to be chatting a bit about constipation in children. Welcome back, Dr. Kirsten. Is constipation really a problem in children?
1: Good morning. Yes, constipation is a serious problem and it is very common and unfortunately people think that oh, it will go away by its own or they use some boererate to, to try and resolve the problem. So either it's ignored or, or not treated properly and what people don't understand is in the long run we see a lot of complications. Of course for this lecture, it's important that we should know how to rule out surgical reasons for constipation. So you need to know when to investigate and when it's just, just a plain functional constipation. How
0: would you define constipation?
1: Yeah, that's quite a tricky question because every author of every article would start in the first paragraph with his own definition. And also in different cultures in in our population in South Africa, everybody's got his own idea about what constipation is. In certain uh, cultures, they expect the person to pass one stool a day. Some uh, would say, no, you should pass three or four stools a day. And um, then it's important to not ask a patient when the mother is complaining, don't ask, is your child constipated? You should ask very specific questions and then decide, is this constipation or not? So how can we standardize this? There is criteria used internationally, and these criteria is advocated also by the Children's uh, Continent Society, uh, International Society. And the one that we use is the Rome 4 criteria. You can also go and Google that. It's uh, quite complicated if you read the whole article, but we use this together with a Bristol Stools Chart, and the criteria is as follows. Infrequent defecation, and we say if the patient is passing stools less than twice a week, if there's a history of excessive stool retention, now what does that mean? It means that the child would pass a massive stool that could almost block the toilet and then for three, four, five days no stools at all. Or if they're complaining when they're passing stools that it's painful. A um, hard stool can easily cause pain in children. If by examination you find rectal impaction or an abdominal mass. If they pass such large stools that it really may obstruct the toilet, and they don't know how to wash it away. Or if they've got incontinence of stools at least once a week, and why would they have that? Because they've got fecal impaction, and then that's an overflow incontinence.
0: And how would you use the Bristol Stools Chart to help you?
1: We've got the Stools Chart printed out, laminated, in colour, And we show it to the patient and to the mother and ask them, show me what your stools look like. The chart that I use actually says, choose your poo. And they all laugh about it. And it's quite interesting how the mother and the child would argue, which one now is it? It's very interesting that people often relate stool color and size to uh, food and uh, in babies they might say it looks like thick custard or like yellow toothpaste, all kinds of things. And it's divided from type 1 to type 7 and then the very hard stools are separate hard lumps like nuts and really hard to pass. All sausage shaped but very lumpy, we, they often call that a bunch of grapes, type 2. And type 3 looks like corn on a cob. It's a sausage but with cracks on its surface. Now one, two and three, that is constipation. Four and five is ideally what we would like, a plain sausage, like a snake, smooth and soft, or chicken nuggets, soft blobs with clear cut edges that's passed easily. And then loose stools would be number six and seven where it is fluffy pieces of uh, stools, almost mushy, or like gravy, watery with no solid pieces, entirely in liquid, and that is then classified as loose stools.
0: And on the other end of the spectrum, fecal incontinence, um, how is that relevant in, in children?
1: This is very common. As common is uh, in one to three children in every hundred. So when I explain it to the parents, I tell them that if they're they're in a school with 700 children, there's at least 7 to 15 children with fecal incontinence. So that's very common. Children just realize how they can hide their underpants or hide this problem from other children or from their parents and it can take quite long before they get to a clinic where it's treated. The problem is that when the mother goes to the GP, that's now you, and she says, my child has got this loose stool that he cannot control. If you don't take a proper history and examine this child, you might think he's got an infective diarrhea and now give him something to stop the stools and then you actually worsen the problem. Now, fecal incontinence was previously called encopresis. It's still in some classifications uh, there, but we don't use that term at all anymore. We now talk about two types of fecal incontinence. The one is functional, and that's what's the common one that I'm talking about, the fecal impaction with overflow incontinence, which is in the majority of these patients, Or sometimes they've got an emotional cause and they also have uh, passing stools uh, without controlling it at all. And then, of course, you should know about the organic causes, which is usually easily diagnosed. You know this child had an anorectal malformation or had surgery for a sacral teratoma or some spinal surgery at birth and the nurse were injured and then they are incontinent. Also, we see that in babies with spina bifida and myelomeningocele.
0: What is the etiology of constipation?
1: There's quite a variety of causes for constipation and I'll name them quickly. It could be functional, that's the most common one, anatomical abnormalities, neuromuscular ones that we've mentioned already in causes for incontinence then some metabolic disorders can cause this as well so the one that I think it's important for you to know because that's the treatable one that doesn't need surgery and usually doesn't need a lot of investigation and that's functional constipation so if you take a proper history uh, what what does functional mean that's a diet low in fiber or a low liquid intake that we sometimes see with children that's bedridden, or that spend a lot of time in front of the TV and the computer and they forget to drink if there's no colon discipline at all and that's very common. People are so busy, the mom thinks oh, he'll pass his stools at the nursery school and the nursery school doesn't even notice because there are too many children and then they don't realize that this child is actually not passing stools lack of exercise very common in our under teenage children sitting in front of uh, tvs and and computers and of course in this time of the lockdown it's uh, even more so that the children can't exercise unavailability of toilets means something like the, you know there's a law that toddlers are not allowed in a nursery school to have an open uh, toilet, it's it's got to be locked down. So if they playing outside and there's uh, supervision, of course they've got to go to the teacher or to the lady sitting there and say, I need to go to the toilet. Then she's got to lock, unlock the the room and let them into the toilet under supervision. Now they're playing so nicely, they get up this. Maybe the teacher is busy with another child or, or something and they, they've got to wait. They decide, oh no, I'm not going to go to the toilet now. I'll, I'll just go back playing. That's unavailability of toilets. Also, we find that um, in primary school, they, when they go to the toilet, maybe it's not clean, there's not toilet paper. They're not allowed to go except in break time when there's a lot of children and they decide, oh, I'll go later and then they just don't go at all. Psychological factors is an, an interesting one and people thought for a long time that if you're too harsh with children when you're doing potty training, they're gonna have a problem. But in my research, I found that that's really not a common problem at all. Actually, what could happen is this mother's got to go back to work. The nursery school says we only take children that's spotty trained, so she just take away the nappy and put the pants on. And nobody trained this child. But there are other problems as well. If they move to a new house and the, the toilet's separate from the bathroom and when they close the door, it's dark. And they can't reach the light to put it on. They just don't go. Uh, They think I'll go later when mommy's here or when somebody's here and then they don't go at all. Other psychological problems could be if there's a major change in life, like a divorce, like moving to a new town, a new school, um, and things like that. That could disturb the children and give them uh, emotional problems. And in some times we do find side effects of medication and the most common one that I see is children that's treated for urine incontinence, for enuresis, and that medication causes constipation. And um, if you're not on the lookout for that, you can cause the problem actually when you're treating the enuresis.
0: And what are some anatomical causes of constipation?
1: The ones that we see in paediatric surgery is enostenosis, enorectal malformations, Hirschsprung's disease, and those two we're gonna discuss in separate lectures. And then children that voluntarily decide not to pass stools, or if they've got this anatomical abnormality of a megarectum, so they actually pull the stools in the rectum and then it's too big a ball to pass and they just don't pass stools got overflow incontinence after that
0: and the neuromuscular and metabolic causes
1: the neuromuscular ones we see in the spina bifida or meningocele patients the CP patients uh, from the peace neurology clinic if they've got paraplegia and then if uh, a child with a prune belly that's absence of the abdominal muscles if they survive the, the kidney problems then they always present with constipation. And then children with Down syndrome that's very hypertonic and they can't use their abdominal muscles properly to push down, they will also end up with constipation. The metabolic ones is hypothyroidism. Now, I don't think that Hypothyroidism will present only with constipation. They'll present in children with other symptoms failure to thrive, not growing, a big tongue, um, a little bit different from the symptoms in adults, but then also with constipation. So if you've got a constipated child and you seem to, this child looks like there's something else going on and doesn't respond properly just on the usual treatment, then I think it's a good idea to just do the TSH and make sure that this child doesn't have hyperthyroidism.
0: So in the clinic, what would be your approach to evaluating a child that potentially has constipation?
1: This is a a very important part of my topic. And I actually think in every diagnosis, you should have the system and remember it all the time. You need to take a proper history and then do a physical examination and then go to other investigations. I often get this letter from doctors from a rural area. This is a patient with constipation, not reacting to conservative treatment. Please do a biopsy for Hirschsprung's disease. then I tell the parents, that the doctor tell you about hairsprunga? And they're mostly quite scared because they know this involves surgery. And then I said, all right, forget about whatever happened before. Let's start with the history. And what do we want to know in the history? The first important thing is when did the constipation start? Did it start at birth? Was there a problem with passing meconium? And now if this child is three or four years old, the mother would say, Doctor, I can't remember about the meconium. And that means most probably it was normal. If it was abnormal, the child had a distended abdomen, he stayed in hospital two or three days because he didn't pass meconium, then of course the mother would remember that. And these two questions is the first important question to rule out or to think this might be Hirschsprung's disease, but we'll get into the detail of that in the other lecture. So when can constipation then start? Are there specific events? Yes. If the mother's weaning this baby from the breast starting formula because she's got to go back to work, then that's a time when there's a change in the diet uh, or with the introduction of solids. So you've got to ask very specifically when did you start these things and then see if it's a relation to the constipation. It could start at the time of potty training if the mother is giving uh, too much pressure to this child. And I think the, the common mistake that mothers make is they, they tell the child to sit on the potty or on the toilet and when they do pass a stool it's a big hoo-ha, phoning granny, give them golden stars and you're a wonderful child and tomorrow he doesn't pass a stool. And now he feels, oh, now I've disappointed my mother. And actually, we are not machines. We can't always do the same thing exactly, be programmed to do it at the exact time, especially if the bell wasn't trained to do that. So that could be a reason. Or then in potty training as well, the other important thing to realize is they should feel safe on the toilet. So if it's a small child and a big toilet, they might be worried that they're going to fall into the toilet and the mom is going to flush them away. And therefore, you should use an inner ring to make sure that they feel safe and you should have a small little... um, support something for support for the feet and you don't have to go and buy expensive stuff. You can just use an apple box or or a big shoe box so that their feet are supported and then they feel safe and they don't get this uh, problem with don't want to sit on the toilet. Um, And then, as I've said before, starting nursery school or going to a new environment could be a problem. Then you should ask if this child sometimes passed stools uh, spontaneously or does the child always need medicine or an enema to pass stools? That's a red flag. It should not be like that. How long is the interval between passing stools? Now that comes back to the definition. This mother's previous child, baby, passed four or five stools a day. Now this one is passing one stool in five days, and you think, now my child is constipated. How does that work? Well, in a newborn, I think it's important that you know, if they are breastfed, the amount of stools depend on the amount of milk that the mother has. So the common thing is with a first child, when she's feeding on demand, the more the baby is suckling, The more milk the mother produces and every time the baby calls her she would put him on the breast to soothe the baby and the more he's drinking the more milk the mother produces so this child doesn't need all that milk and he's going to pass that in stools five to ten times a day and then when the third child comes now this mother is very busy taking the first one to ballet classes and to nursery school and she's got all kinds of things to do. So now she's got a routine and she's feeding this baby only three to four hours. She's got just enough milk, the baby is growing well, but he needs all the milk that he's getting from the mother so he doesn't pass stools. He could even pass stools once in 10 days and that is not constipation in a newborn baby. Then you also need to ask if the child's got faecal soiling, and that's another point that rules out Hirschsprung's disease. They don't soil. Um, it's important to take a complete dietary and fluid intake history. And if you don't have 45 minutes to do that in your private practice, please refer them to a dietitian. I can promise you, if you're asking a mother, do you have a healthy diet at home, 99% would say yes. And you don't have a clue if they're eating chocolate spread on white bread for breakfast or what they're doing if you think that's healthy. Don't, don't ask the question in a leading way. Ask them very specifically uh, what you are eating and how often, what is in the tuck box and so forth then make sure that you know what this child was treated with before and how did the child respond to this treatment for the constipation. And of course, it's very important to know if the child's got other diseases or use other medication regularly.
0: And what do you look for in the physical examination?
1: First of all, you need to look at the general condition of this patient. Does he have failure to thrive or is it the healthy, chubby child growing well? It's important to undress them and evaluate the abdomen. Is it descended? Sometimes in bigger children, you can even see the mass of the faecal impaction. And I had one 12-year-old child that she was tested for, a pregnancy test was done because on examination, it felt like a uterus, but it was actually a fecaloma. I also had uh, a child coming from a uh, secondary hospital who had a CT scan for this abdominal mass. Um, and this, uh, I used to say in classes, this was a very shitty reason to do a CT scan. And why did they do a CT scan? Because they didn't take a proper history. They didn't do a rectal examination, so they did not find this fecal mass. And then they did a CT scan to confirm that there was faecal infection so um, that's really important. Also always check the perineum and the anus. This child might have an anus but maybe it's only one or two millimeter big and now this child can't pass stools properly and and therefore develops this severe constipation and the worst example that I experienced in, in my career was a nine month old child that nobody, until she got to a surgeon, took off the nappy and looked at the anus and saw that it's not possible to pass tools through that anus. Then you need to do a rectal examination. See if there's any abnormality. That also helps you in the diagnosis of Hirschsprung's disease in the smaller babies. And is there fecal impaction? Are there any other masses? And what you should think of is if the child has got a coma in the pelvis, that would actually block the uh, uh, rectum and the child can't pass through. So when you do a rectal examination, you do feel this pelvic mass or a lymphoma could present like that. This is in minority of cases, but if you don't do a rectal examination and you don't make this diagnosis for that child, it's a 100% mistake. So please also look at this child's back and uh, do a spinal examination and see if there's any abnormalities that you then of course need to investigate further.
0: Once you've taken a, a thorough history and examined your patient properly, is there any need to investigate any further and if there is when would you do it?
1: In my practice, I prefer to do a plain abdominal x-ray on all the children that presents with constipation. It just gives me a black on white example to show the parents this is what is going on with your child because often, especially in the ones with uh, incontinence, the parents doesn't realize that this child is actually constipated. It is a little bit controversial. And I don't think you should do it if you're not looking at abdominal x-rays regularly. It it might not help you. But before you do and before I do any further investigations, I've got to decide if there are any red flags. Does this child have failure to thrive? Does he have a very distended abdomen? Um, Does he have any other symptoms of hypothyroidism and so forth? and only in that case, do you need to do further investigations. If there are no red flags, and clearly clinically and on my abdominal x-ray when I evaluate them, I see uh, constipation and fecal loading, then I make the diagnosis of functional constipation, which should be treated firstly with this impaction with oral and rectal medication, and regular follow up. Don't hope that you give the mother one NMR and tell her, go home, eat healthy, be happy, and you don't follow up on them. For sure, this child will have a recurrence of these problems. And if they're not responding, you should start the evaluation from the beginning, which means I start with a history again and say, maybe I missed something the first time, let's see what is going on. But my experience is that mostly, if they're not responding, it's because they're still impacted. The impaction was not treated properly. So you need to do follow up to make sure what is going on. And then of course, if there's an obvious surgical problem that goes on to surgical treatment, and those would be the anal stenosis, the anorectal malformations, or Hirschsprung's disease, uh, just to name a few.
0: When you have a patient with some of the red flags you were talking about, which investigations would you consider doing, and for whom?
1: So if it's a patient that you think might have Hirschsprung's disease, the history sounds like it. We don't just jump to the rectal biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. We first do a contrast enema, and that can often help us to see where is the problem in the colon, is it the whole colon, is it the distal colon, what is going on. Then if um, it's very suspicious of Hirschsprung's disease, we'll go on and do a rectal biopsy. In more difficult patients where we really are not sure what is going on and that can easily happen, then we could also do an anorectal manometry which is not an easy investigation in children because if you sedate them they can't push down and if they've got uh, a problem with going to the toilet they won't allow you to put the catheter into their rectum so we've got to choose our patients specifically it is possible to do a proper anorectal manometry especially if the person who's doing it um, has some knowledge how to communicate with children. Sometimes we need to do an inpatient observation and evaluation and see exactly what is going on with this child so that we can see when is he passing stools, how is he passing stools, what does it look like and document it properly. And then lastly, in the minority of children, we do a transit time where we give them some pellets orally and we take a series of X-rays and we can see where is the holdup? is the problem with, with the transit.
0: And once you've diagnosed the constipation, what would be a general approach to the treatment of the disease?
1: If I've diagnosed uh, a child with faecal loading and uh, maybe faecal impaction, then I'll start giving them faecal softness. And the one that I think is working the best is liquid paraffin. And if you go and read the package insert, you can see that you can give quite big dosages and not five milliliters per day to a 12 year old child that's already 50 kilograms. So you need to look up the, the dosages of, of that one. Together with that, I prefer to give them a purgative, something, a containing product that can help uh, with the propulsion of the stools and that I usually give once a week and then I repeat it for two or three weeks and see how the child reacts not on a daily basis and uh, also uh, proper dosages previously we had a syrup we don't have that anymore it's not available at all and therefore we give them tablets and mostly we'll give that to children older than two years and and not in smaller babies it's very important to adjust the diet, and I've got a standard appointment on my clinic days for the children at the dietitian, just to give them an overview. And the the most uh, important things is tell them um, not to eat refined uh, carbohydrates. That means no rice krispies, no white bread, and so forth. But rather give these children a high fiber breakfast. Which would we be Easily, wheat picks or NutriFix or, or, or brand or one of those to give them brown bread instead of uh, white bread and then take away all the excessive sugar. And how does that help? If a child is hungry, he will eat proper food. But if you give him a lot of sweets and sugar containing cold drinks or even fruit juices, he won't be hungry. And now what's the story about fruit juices? It's natural and it's uh, advertised as healthy. Actually it's not. It's very concentrated. And 200 milliliters of pure apple juice contains the juice of four apples. Now have you ever seen a two-year-old child eating four apples? No, not even one. But now you're giving them the energy of four apples and they drink that fruit juice in two minutes and you expect them not to be active and to have a good appetite. So yes, please tell them, rather give their child a glass of water and one apple than the apple juice. Then I also add a little bit of wheat bran to their diet, only one teaspoon a day. Um, and that just helps the, the bowel m- movement uh, properly. It's actually also good for the adults um, to have some extra fiber and once they heard the whole story of constipation, they realized that the adults in, in the household also has a problem and can benefit from adjusting the diet. When you adjust the diet, it is important that you don't make an exception of this child. Everybody can't have Coke and now this child must drink water, uh, it's just not sustainable. You should uh, adjust the diet of the whole family. And then treat them good bowel habits. And um, how do we do that? Well, the firstly, and especially in the potty training children and even in the anorectal malformations, um, a routine is really the best thing that you can do and how you do it is just tell this child to go and sit on the potty or toilet once a day preferably if possible in the morning after breakfast so that you know that passed the stool for the day and if you keep on putting this child on the toilet every morning at the same time after a while he will start passing stools and don't make a big grouah about that just you've passed the stool that's good that's natural Let's uh, get ready for the day. You need to educate the parents and the family about this whole thing, especially where they are, uh, didn't even think this child really had had a problem, or they thought they had a good diet, or they thought, no, you can go to the toilet whenever you like. Um, then you've got to educate them properly. And then, of course, a regular follow-up and support of the family to make sure. In some children, it is necessary to use an an enema, rectal medication as well. Sometimes only initially, sometimes for a longer period. And I evaluate these children. If they allow me to do a rectal examination without a lot of screaming, then I know the mother will be able to give them an enema at home. If they don't allow me, then I will not use an enema and think about other possibilities.
0: And how would you manage incontinence?
1: I think I would uh, stress the factors of treating of incontinence when it is functional and not when it is an organic cause, although the principles are almost the same. It is important to know that there is a well-organized, precise plan and you don't do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You've got to do the proper thing and everything at the same time. After evaluation and making sure there's not an organic problem, you should do the disinfection properly and evaluate afterwards to make sure that this medicine that you gave worked. And the motto of the clinic is an empty bowel cannot soil, which means if this child does not have infection anymore and he is going to the toilet once a day, you will stop soiling. Again, the education about a high fiber diet and water, and then uh, the mothers would always ask me, so so what is a healthy snack? Which chocolate should I buy if I want to buy a healthy one? And I think uh, what I usually tell them is, uh, no, I don't think you should use any chocolate when you start with the program, cut out all sugar, and then rather give this children popcorn or peanuts and raisins if they're big enough to eat that. Rather give them pruvitas than Mari cookies and teach them to like water. Also, give an example. I've got always a bottle of water on my desk and I drink while I talk to them so that they can see there's nothing much about it. And how much water should the child drink? Well, um, the, the the formula that I use is 250 milliliters or 1 cup of water for every 10 kilos of body weight and that gives you a nice idea as they grow up how to increase the water and they don't have to drink that all at once. You can teach them to take a few sips of water several times during the day and uh, before they know their bottle is empty. Then the, the daily routine. And sometimes if it was a severe impaction with overflow incontinence, I'll really try and give these children the enemas because it's so much easier to teach them the daily routine if you give them an enema and they'll pass tools immediately. And uh, if not possible at first, I'll ask the parents to discuss with the children at home and give them a choice. Do you want to be helped? Uh, Do you want us to stop this fecal soiling because these children really have uh, social and emotional problems at school because of the fecal soiling. They are called terrible names. Um, Even at home, sometimes they're not uh, allowed to sit on on the same bench with the other children watching TV or they must always use the, the bath last at night or they're not allowed to go with when they're going on an outing What because there's a big chance that they can uh, soil and then it's a, a big problem for, for the parents. So um, if you can teach them this daily routine with an NMR, it, it really helps. And, and what we advocate is that they have breakfast, then the NMR, and I use the adult, previously called Fleet Enema, or now commercially available as a Lenolax Enema or a Phosphate Enema. I use the adult one and they only use half at a time. The reason being that the big enema bottle is easier to use and you won't believe this. The pediatric one has got half the contents of the adult one and it's the same price so it really helps if you can tell then use half an enema at a time and then the next day uh, the other half so it's breakfast enema toilet breakfast enema toilet and after a while when they start passing stools regularly or maybe even another time of the day then you slowly take away the enema and after breakfast they go to the toilet to sit there and when they start passing the spontaneous stool, then you don't have to give them the enema anymore but you can't say all right we'll give you the enema for three weeks and then we're going to stop it and you're on your own and you should be fine no it doesn't work like that and then education of the family They often think these children are naughty. Sometimes they're told by the teachers or even by the doctors, this child uh, would outgrow it and then if he doesn't outgrow it, he's doing this because he's naughty. So you have to explain to them this was a physical problem and I've got a a written handout that I give them to go and give to the aunties and the fathers and the grannies so that they all can read what is going on and stop um, punishing these children when they're swelling their pants. If you follow this plan in most cases within two weeks they will stop swelling and then the child will believe you and come back and say thank you doctor and, and I'll do what you ask me. Of course, all of them doesn't work like that. The children wasn't doesn't want to stick to the diet, or they don't want to drink water, or they don't want to eat the bran, or they don't want the enema. And then it is um, quite important to then also do a psychological evaluation and give them emotional support. Now, this cannot be done in a GP or even a pediatric surgery's rooms in a 15-minute consultation. With the first consultation, I spend at least one hour with the parents and then they still have to go to the dietitian, And then in follow-up, at least 20 to 30 minutes for each consultation to make sure there's not something else going on to make sure that we support them properly and see if there's anything else that needs our attention. And therefore, I would urge you if you've got a child with what is commonly called incopresis or fecal incontinence of a functional cause, please send them to a specialist clinic where they can be evaluated and treated properly and come for a regular follow-up And how regular is that? Initially I see them once a week, and then twice a month, and then once a month, and so on. So it is also important that I give a letter to the school and to the the mother to use at work to make sure that they can stick to the appointments because if we treat them properly, we can solve the problem. If not, this can go on for years. And one of the questions that I ask the, the patients when they come with incontinence is, how many doctors have you seen before you got to this clinic at Steve Beaker Hospital? And the most of them would say three, four or five doctors, and was told all kinds of things, sometimes treated properly, but never did the follow-up. And I think, you should rather refer these patients to a specialist clinic so that we can spend enough time and help these kids.
0: Thank you very much. This is clearly a very uh, common and involved topic that really does require someone with a bit of knowledge as well as time to treat these patients. And thank you for coming in today. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.s For young, fresh and relevant content That was another edition Of the Students of Surgery Podcast series
1: Where we shed light On common surgical topics